We're in the second message in the Kingdom Living series, and we're going to talk about the end of chapter 2 of Romans, 12 of Romans, through the end of chapter 13. Some phenomenal verses. As I was uh, studying for this message, I found this quote from The Hobbit when Gandalf says of Saruman believes, it is only great power that can hold evil in check, but that is not what I have found. I found it is in the small everyday deeds of ordinary people that keep darkness at bay, small acts of kindness and love. Whether we like it or not, we live in the margins. Uh, we are at odds with the culture in which we live. And the church is really at her best when she is distinctively different from the world in which we live. When it is an undeniable evidence of the power of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ that comes forth in and through our lives in such a way that the world sees that Christianity is the real deal. The world does not see that because they're not in church. So for Christianity to work, it has to work outside the church. It has to work outside the church walls. Religion is content with information dispersed and never acted on. Christianity cannot help but tell of the things that we have seen and heard. It means that when we walk out of church, we practice our Christianity. It's one thing to put on our church face. It's another thing to put on our Jesus face when we hit the streets and hit the world. And so we are called to be the kind of neighbors, the kind of citizens, the kind of church members that say to the world, God is on the move and God is doing something unique and different. Now, when you look at these verses you will see that these are purpose statements. Everybody has to-do lists. Everybody has lists of things that they want to accomplish with their lives or at least some thought of it. These are purpose statements. Paul is saying, this is what Christianity looks like when it's lived out in this world. And so the first thing he talks about is our attitude toward our neighbors, verse 14 of Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And what Paul is talking about there is that our attitudes affect our actions. How we think determines what we do. And these are not conditional statements, if you feel like it, if you want to. Nor is there anything superficial about this. I mean, just a casual reading of these words will tell you that this is serious business. And God requires this of us. And, and yet, I cannot do this in my own flesh. I can't do it by trying harder or turning over a new leaf. The only way I can do this is what he has said previously. In Romans 12, 1, that we are to have a renewed mind, that we are to be a living sacrifice, 
and out of the renewed mind and a living sacrifice, these challenges, these statements become possible. First of all, is to live in harmony in verse 16. Linsky says, this is harmony deriving from something deeper than unanimity of mind. That I want for you what I want for myself. That I, if I were in your position, I would want what God wants for you. That's harmony. You see, the flesh destroys harmony. That's why he comes right out of this and says, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't get in a clique. Don't get in a little Christian subculture. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And you and I come before the cross with understanding that there's nobody beneath us and we're not above anybody. In fact, if you ever meet somebody that thinks they're better than somebody else, one thing you can know about them, they have not been to the cross. Anybody that thinks they're better than anybody else, the guy that's in the darkest part of death row, the guy that's got a needle in his arm right now, the gal that is selling her body, if you or I for one second think that we are better than them, we have forgotten we are sinners saved by the grace of God. God didn't look at you and say, I like you better than I like them. He died for the whole world. And it took his blood to save you just like it will take his blood to save them. And there's no distinction between who's better. And when a church has a mentality in any way that says, I will reject people because they don't look like me, act like me, talk like me, they don't live in the kind of neighborhood I live in, then that church has decided it's not a church anymore. It's just a country club for religious people. When the Bible speaks of hospitality, it always speaks of how we treat strangers. When Paul writes about it, when, when he mentions it in several of his books, he's talking about how we street, treat people that we don't know, strangers. That hospitality is not how you treat your inner circle. I mean, if you go out to eat with people, the same people all the time, of course you're going to be hospitable. They're your friends. He's talking about how you treat your enemies, how you treat the people that you don't know. That's what hospitality talks about. So he, he says we're to live in harmony. Then he says get over yourself. Actually, he doesn't say get over yourself. I'm saying get over yourself. I'm saying get over myself. Verse 17. Never, now he's going to say this twice, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He didn't say unless it's a circumstance that you think it ought to be paid back. Never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is saying to us in these purpose statements about how we are to live, Paul is saying you never have a right to hold a grudge or be unforgiving. 
You ever met a Christian who is unforgiving? They've never been happy because nobody can ever do enough for them. Unforgiveness is a lousy way to live, especially in light of the forgiveness that we've received in Christ. Holding a grudge is too great a weight to bear. We should not hold a grudge. We shouldn't be unforgiving. Now, Paul is writing about us personally, how we are to live personally as believers. This is not about the justice system. This is not about police officers. This is not about the court system. This is not about the nation in which we live. This is about you and me and how we treat other people. And the reason Paul says that is twofold. You aren't the final judge. And you aren't God. You're not the final judge. God's the final judge. God's the one that balances all the books. You're not the final judge, and you're not God. He did not die and make you king. He has not let you be on the throne for five minutes. You would make a mess of it. I would make a mess of it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, that is a function of God. Vengeance is a function of God regardless of how many Rambo movies you've seen or how many Westerns you've seen. It's still the function of God. Now, here's what happens when we take vengeance. When we try to get even, when we try to get our rights, when we try to say, they owe me, here's what we're saying. I don't trust God with this situation. I can't trust God with this situation. I can't wait for God to do this. So I'm going to become God myself and take this matter in my own hands because at the end of the day, I think I can do a better job of settling what's right and wrong than God can. That's a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous place to be. So he says, be a peacemaker. Verse 18, if possible, if possible, be at peace with all men. I mean, if it's any way within your capacity, be a peacemaker. What he's saying there is don't be the problem maker. Don't be the troublemaker. Don't be the rabble rouser. Be a peacemaker. If at all possible, live at peace. Because you see, if I'm not at peace with people, I'm probably being a troublemaker. Then he says, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, verse 20 and 21. I love this statement by Warren Wiersbe. The Christian must not play God and try to avenge himself. Returning evil for evil or good for good is the way most people live. But the Christian must live on a higher level and return good for evil. Of course, this requires love because our first inclination is to fight back. It also requires faith. Believing that God can work and accomplish his will in our lives and in the lives of those who hurt us. So what does that mean? It means I'm to go to the second mile. I'm to turn the other cheek. It means I'm to pray for those who despitefully use me. You know, it takes all of Jesus for me to act like Jesus. And it may not take all of him for you, but it takes all of him for me. It takes all of Jesus for me to act like Jesus and to respond like Jesus. That's why I need to depend on the Holy Spirit because I can't do it myself. So how, how am I supposed to live? Well, I'm, I'm supposed to 
have these kind of attitudes toward my neighbor? Well, the, the first question that comes up is a 2,000-year-old question. Guy walks up to Jesus one day, and he says, uh, hey, you know, what are the great commandments? What, what are the commandments? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, who's my neighbor? Define my neighborhood. So I know that if, they don't, if they're not my neighbor, I don't have to love them. And so you know what Jesus did? The master teacher, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, there are three people in that besides the man in the ditch. There's the priest, there's the Levite, and there's the Samaritan. And it's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not one Jew alive at that time would have ever said a Samaritan was good. In fact, the Jews would have said that Samaritans were dogs. They were like half-breed dogs. And they would walk around Samaria to keep from even setting foot, one foot inside the property line of a Samaritan. And Jesus said, I must go to Samaria, which is our marching orders for everybody that doesn't look like us. I must go where the people don't all look like me. I must love where the people don't act like me. And so he goes to Samaria. He talks to a woman at the well. There's another person that's downtrodden. Women were treated like dogs. A man could divorce his wife for burning his toast in the first century. I could divorce, divorce Terry 175 times a year. I mean, that's you know. She's not in this service. <laughs> So he tells the story of these three people. There's a priest and a Levite. Now, they lived, most of them lived in Jericho, which is an uphill walk. If you read the Psalms of Ascent, they would have, everything goes uphill to Jerusalem. They would have walked up and sung the songs of Ascent on their way to Jerusalem. So the priest and the Levite are either, and this is about at the halfway point, tradition tells us, between Jerusalem and Jericho, a very dark, dangerous road, still dark and dangerous today. And at about the halfway point, thieves rob this guy and leave him for dead in a ditch. And the priest and the Levite, it says, passed by on the other side of the road. Now get this. They were either going to worship or they were coming from worship. But either going to or coming from, they see a person in need and they walk on the other side and they probably said, we ought to add that boy to the prayer list. He needs prayer. He's hurting. I hope he's still alive when somebody finds him. I hope he's not dead because, see, they were afraid to touch him. Jesus was never afraid to touch people. He was not afraid to touch a leper and he was not afraid to touch the dead because Jesus loved unconditionally. So he said, who's my neighbor? I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Your neighbor's the person you see in need and God puts them in your path and you do something about it. Then there are the attitudes that God expects regarding the nation. <clears throat> now, you've got to remember the context of this. There's, there's two contexts, really. The first context is we are citizens of two worlds. We are citizens of earth and we are citizens of heaven. As a citizen of earth, I am a 
citizen of Albany, Georgia, and of Darty County, and the state of Georgia, and the United States. But I am also a citizen of heaven. Now, as a citizen of earth, I have responsibilities. There are ways that I am responsible to act as a citizen and as a Christian. I have responsibilities on this earth. I have rewards in heaven. Now think about who Paul is writing to. He is not writing <clears throat> to the American church where we have the freedom to worship and to assemble and to speak. He's not writing to that church. He's writing to a persecuted church. Rome was the ruling power of the world. They had crushed all of their enemies. This was at the peak of their power. They had enslaved the Jewish people. Paul is writing to people that see Rome as an unbeatable force. Caesar is a demonic dictator. He is a proponent of perversion. He is a sick, demonic man. And he rules with an iron fist. And anybody that disagrees can be imprisoned or beheaded. In those days, as persecution began to rise, historians tell us that they would take Christians and tie them to posts on the way out of Rome, and they would light them on fire. History records this. You can go and visit the places where these things happen. And in the catacombs outside of Rome, they would use Christians as street lamps to light the way for the pagans to go to their festivals and their festivities. There was not one person that read this letter to the church at Rome that thought there would ever be any end to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would last forever. They had unbeatable power. I was in Rome two years ago. Walked through the ruins of what was once one of the most powerful empires in the world. And now they can't even figure out how to keep their country together. Nothing lasts forever except the word of God and the souls of men. And so when Paul writes this, look at what he's saying to people living in that kind of world. You've got to see yourself in a third world country. You've got to see yourself in the Middle East in a place of persecution. You've got to see yourself in a place where your life is threatened by the very existence of your confession of faith. Every person is to be subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves 
to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Paul is telling us how to respond to this world. And look at what he says. There's God's authority and our response to government. And five times in seven verses, he uses the word authority. Now, <clears throat> remember the context. This is not about where you go into a ballot box and you decide you're going to vote Republican, Democrat, Independent, or you've got to be kidding. You get no vote. Nobody got a vote in what Nero did. Nobody got a vote in what Caesar did. Nobody. And he says we're to obey those in authority. So what is he saying? He's saying that God is the author of authority. Now, God is not happy and God is not pleased with every form of authority and the way people use authority, but he is the basis of authority. Authority begins and ends with God. He is the final authority. He decides and he alone what finally will happen. And so you, you get Adam and Eve and they're in the garden. And what do they got? They, they've got God as an authority. You say, oh yeah, but they had fellowship with God. Yeah, but God had an authority system in the garden. He said, let's have fellowship. Don't eat from that tree. You ever tried to tell your children not to eat something? It just about makes them want to eat it even if they don't like it. Don't eat from that tree. One rule. I'm in charge. I created you. I put you in a garden. I gave you a perfect environment. You got one thing you can't do. And they did it. So then Moses comes along and he gives them ten commandments. Everything in God's authority can be written on a postcard. Congress can't write anything without 2,000 pages. And nobody in Congress knows how to read. So that's another whole issue. God said, here's the authority. So he gave us Ten Commandments. What have we been doing? We've been breaking them ever since he gave them. We break ten. We can't keep the ten. We can't keep the ten. And God's authority is a reminder that we cannot live up to what God expects. And so we need to come under his authority and under Christ's lordship so that in that and that alone we find the grace for salvation. So let me give you four or five things here. First of all, God alone is the ultimate authority. I've already said that. <clears throat> One day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Secondly, God delegates some authority to husbands, governments, and parents, which means if I'm an employer or I'm a husband or I'm a parent or I'm in the government, I should look to God for how I use my authority. I should not boast of my title or my position or abuse my power. I should look to God for how I use that authority as a husband, as a parent, as a leader. Number three, God expects us to follow authority. Verse two, that's a broad application of what he says here in verse two. And, and don't get lost in the weeds, but basically, if I can just sum it up, he's saying don't go out and pick fights. Don't see who you can get in a fight with. By the way, if we just did that, social media posts would go down 35% today. If we just quit picking fights with people and trying to see how many likes we get on our argument. Number four, God will judge rebellion. God will judge rebellion. 
Acts 5, we should obey God rather than men. Now, the only exception to that is if authority tells us to do something that is contrary to the Word of God. If an authority figure tells us to do something that is contrary, whether it's a parent or anybody else, tells us to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, we must follow Acts 5. We must obey God rather than men. If a parent tells a child to steal, that child should not steal. If a parent tells a child to give their bodies to somebody else, that child should not obey that. That's how sexual and child abuse get started. By people doing things that are outside the word and the will of God. It's the only time. But other than that, we're supposed to follow what God says. Jesus did not become a revolutionary Messiah. Paul did not lead a revolution. Paul, Paul said to Timothy, pray for those who are in authority. Number five, God uses authority for the greater good. Now here's just, let me just simply summarize that. Where there is no authority, there is anarchy. And where there's anarchy, there's trouble. You don't want anarchy and you don't want tyranny. You say, well, I don't like who's in authority. I don't like who's over this. I don't like who's over that. Well, the choice is no authority and anarchy. And nobody wants to live where there's anarchy. So then there's God's principles. Love is the guiding principle, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. You see, you got to think the long game, not just the moment, not just the issue, not just the feeling. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he mentions four, four of the Ten Commandments. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, if you just look back up one verse, in verse 7, two times he talks about what's due. That's what duty demands of us. But in verse 8, He's talking about what love demands of us. There are certain things that duty demands of us, but verse 8, what love demands of us. And John Stott, in talking about what love demands, says, it is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. So our duty is to pay our taxes, to obey those who are in authority. Our duty is to love our neighbors. And there's nothing about how we feel in any of that. Well, I'll obey if I feel like it. Well, that's not in the verse. There's nothing about how we feel here. Paul doesn't say the law is love. He doesn't say love replaces the law. He says love fulfills the law. Love allows us to do what is expected of us. And he does all of this in the attitude of God expects in light of his coming. Verse 11. Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. <clears throat> the night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly. Now remember, he's writing the church. He's not writing the people that had to call a cab to get out of a bar last night. He's writing... The church, 
And he says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Pause right there. That is exactly the kind of lifestyle that was accepted in Rome. And if the Christians had acted that way, they'd have been like every other dead religion. He says, don't do that. But... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Now in Romans 12, the appeal is that we renew our minds and that we are living sacrifice. In Romans 13, the appeal is we need to think about the fact that Christ is coming back. We need to live in light of his second coming. In the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey makes this statement, begin with the end in mind. In other words, start understanding that there is a stop. Either in death or in the second coming, one day it all comes to an end. And Paul is saying, in light of the fact that Christ is coming back, we are rooted in that hope that he is coming back, we rejoice in that hope, but we have a responsibility in that hope to live and act in a certain way because Christ is coming back. So he says, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is reminding us that our faith is going to be tested. That we got to have our feet firmly planted waiting for the coming of Christ, but knowing that one day, whether he comes in our lifetime or not, there will be an accounting. There will be an examination of our lives and how we've lived out these purpose statements that he's given us. Our homework is to live this way. Our going home work is to live this way. See, you can kind of ignore all this in church. But if our Bible doesn't make us better people on the streets, we ought to start reading the Bible again and not missing the parts that we don't want to talk about and not selecting where we want to obey and where we don't want to obey. You see, God doesn't measure by, well, I'm better than some people. God measures by Christ. And when I'm measured by Christ, I have to be measured by the fact that he told me that I had things to do until he comes back. I have people that I need to talk to. I have the gospel that I need to share. I have sermons that I need to preach. I have a neighbor that I need to love. I have a government that I need to pray for. And I have an authority that I need to be under because one day he's coming back and he's going to show us somehow, I don't know how this is going to happen. This is my sanctified imagination. What if, what if, what if, first thing you get in heaven is not well done, good and faithful servant. He just starts in Romans chapter 12 and says, now let's talk about uh, 2018. Um, I don't have any evidence here that you had a renewed mind or were a living sacrifice. Now let's, let's go on down here. And, uh, every person is being subjection. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I read your Facebook post and it didn't look much like you believed that one. And uh, render to do, you know, I see you lied on your income tax return, which is, by the way, due in a few weeks. Uh, I see that you lied on that, uh, but I told you to pay tax to whom tax is due. 
Huh. Well, I don't like to pay taxes. Hey, nobody likes to pay taxes. If you like to pay taxes, we have a counseling center right across the street. <laughs> nobody likes to pay taxes, but you know what I like? I like the fact that we have police officers on the street that keep us safe. I like the fact that we have military stationed around the world that fight for the freedom that we enjoy. And that doesn't happen because somebody gave them a free biscuit at Chick-fil-A. Somebody's got to pay for that. Somebody has to pay for it. So before you start complaining and nitpicking, just remember, if you get to lay your head down tonight safe, you're better than most of the world. Because a lot of Christians in this world right now don't know if they will have a life tomorrow they're being killed. Over 100,000 Christians were martyred for their faith in 2017. That number will rise this year. So let's do what God says. Not what we think, not what we feel, not what's convenient. Let's do what God says. And then like a good neighbor, we can be the hands and feet of Jesus and not be the priest and Levite that walk by on the other side of the road. We can be the Samaritan that reaches down and touches a life and changes a person. Let's pray together. <clears throat> I just want to ask you in these moments, if you, if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I didn't ask you if you were religious. I did not ask you if you were a member of Sherwood or any other church. I didn't ask you if you'd been baptized. I asked you a question, simple question, honest question. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If he were to come back before we walk out of this room and take his church home, are you absolutely, without a doubt, sure that you would go with him? Not based on the fact that you're good, but based on the fact that he is good. If you don't know that today, then I want to invite you to, when we stand, to come and give your heart to Jesus Christ this morning. But if you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then I want to invite you to take those purpose statements. And with those purpose statements, turn it into a prayer list. Lord. I'm not here yet, but I want to get here. I, 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 I'm not doing this right now, but I need to start doing it. I need your help to do it. Just read down through these verses that we've covered this morning. Say, Lord, this one, you need to work on my heart. This one, you need to help me. This one, I need to admit that I've sinned against you by not doing this. Just go down the list and talk to the Lord about that list. You may want to do it here at the altar. You may want to do it when you get home. You may want to talk about it as a family, about what you need to do. Leaving this place so that your Christianity is impactful in the culture, not just something we do at church. Let's stand together. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Seth's going to be singing. As he sings, I'm going to ask you to step out and to come right now. <clears throat>